is Daisy Osborne. My husband, Dr. T.L. Osborne, and I want to tell you of the supernatural visitation of Jesus Christ to our house, of what preceded and what followed this phenomenal experience. We will both share with you the greatest crisis and the greatest search of our lives. We have shared as teammates in great gospel crusades in nearly 70 nations. We have ministered to multitudes of 100,000 and more in a single meeting. I believe that the Lord wants to visit your house just as he visited ours, that he wants to make his presence a living reality in your life today. And now, my husband and I want to share this extraordinary experience with you. We're making this recording because of a question Daisy asked me the other day. We were talking about Easter, the Easter of our Gethsemane and the Easter of our Resurrection. It was the year that we were in the midst of the greatest crisis of our lives, and it was climaxed by the Lord's visit to our home when T.L. saw Jesus alive and real. I remember that as though it was yesterday. The power of his presence looking right at me was so great that I lay at his feet like I was dead. There's no way to explain what his actual presence is like. I've been thinking about that experience. So I asked T.L. if we had ever made a special recording of what happened to us through that supernatural visitation so that other people could be helped. You know, as soon as Daisy said that, I realized that we'd never done it. We've told it in crusades all over the world. And that's what's amazing. Every time we've told that story, some of the greatest miracles we've ever seen have taken place. That's true. And I believe that the reason God impressed us to make this recording is because he wants that visitation to be known. And he's going to confirm it by doing miracles wherever anyone sits down and listens. You know, Jesus has appeared at least once and often many times in practically every crusade we've ever conducted. He sure has. And I believe he's done it to confirm that he's still alive and real today. And I also expect him to make you aware of his presence right there where you are as you listen. As T.L. was preaching the other day, I heard him read this scripture, and I'd like to read it to you right now. Jesus was attending a celebration at the temple in Jerusalem, and the Living Bible says in John chapter 10, verse 24, the Jewish leaders surrounded him and asked him, If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Then in verse 25, Jesus replied, The proof is in the miracles that I do in my Father's name. At God's direction... I've done many a miracle to help people. Then in verses 30 to 36, Jesus talked to them about his relationship with God. They were angry because he had called God his father, and by doing so, claimed to be the son of God. The religious leaders viewed the idea so scandalous that they tried to stone him. And that's when he told them that the proof of his being God's son was in the miracles. Then in verse 37, he said, don't believe me unless I do the miracles of God. And if I do, then believe them, even if you don't believe in me. The proof is in the miracles that I do in my Father's name. Is there any need for miracles today? Is Christianity really provable? What was the need for miracles when Jesus was here? Even people of other religions agree he did do miracles. Is it any different now? We were very young when we accepted Christ, and right away, we wanted to help other people know about him. Should that be normal? At what age? How can you know? You know, there are the great sacred books of the Orient, Confucius writings, Buddhist sayings, Muhammad's teachings, and, of course, the Bible. 
How can we know the truth? How do we know that Jesus' life is supernatural or different, for that matter, from these other religions? Is there a danger of being branded a fanatic if you're different from your peers? How does the Lord come to us in the now and make our lives count? How can we know that the dreams we're dreaming or the goals we're setting are right for us? What is real success? Is success wrong? Well, that's why we decided to tell this story. We found the answers to those questions, and our lives came into focus during the periods between those two Easter's. We call it the Easter of our Gethsemane and the Easter of our Resurrection. Since then, we've known nothing but success, happiness, peace, and fulfillment. We've known beautiful love together, harmony, tranquility, and most of all, our lives have had purpose, real purpose, and we've known real success. But it all started with a terrible failure. But in the midst of that crisis, we picked up the pieces, we searched till we got answers, and we've turned that failure into a beautiful lifetime of success and true fulfillment. Yeah, Daisy and I were both converted when we were only 12 years old. And uh, from that very time, we loved souls, and we wanted to help people find Christ. From our early marriage at very young ages, we set right out in soul-winning ministries. I remember later, as we got involved with a denomination and joined, that the uh, superintendent of that denomination was a man who had gone to India as a missionary. And every camp meeting or Bible conference or uh, fellowship meeting that we attended, and wherever this man preached, he preached about India and preached about missions until he preached India into our very soul. Then you remember we became pastors for the first time. We're very young pastors. And who should come as a guest to our church but a lady, a missionary from India. And she picked up where this pastor who had ordained you to the ministry had left off. And there again we were facing India and the call of her millions. And, you know, we decided, well, we've got to go because the people there need Christ more than the people here in our country. We felt that it was a logical decision to go to India as missionaries. We felt it was like uh, we had heard a great missionary statesman uh, say, if ten men were lifting on a log, nine of them on the small end and only one on the big end, and if you wanted to help lift the log, which end would you help on? It was logical to us to help where there was the greatest need and the fewest people involved in meeting that need. But, of course, the problem with our lives uh, we weren't prepared. We were dedicated, we were consecrated, we were willing, but we really weren't prepared. I remember the particular shock that took place in my life, and I'm sure it was the same with you, Daisy, mm -hmm. when we found that the Muslims believed in the same God as we did. Now, this was the first time that we had begun to study language, and we were uh, trying to study the Hindustani language, and in the process of this, we learned that the Muslims had a different word for God. Their word was Allah, but it was the same God that we worshipped, the God of Abraham, the same God that the Jews worshipped. And we thought they were pagans. We thought they were 
worshippers of dead gods. And we found they were wonderful believers in God. They prayed five times a day. They loved to talk about God. We made many friends among them. Merchants that we dealt with were Muslims. And uh, I remember many times they would shake my hand and say, Good morning, Brother Osborne. And they would add maybe, Praise God. And I was so shocked. Remember how amazed we were when they were talking to us and we discovered that they really believed Jesus was a good man. I'll never forget that. They loved to come and study his teachings with us because they had great admiration for him as a prophet and as a teacher who did these things. They'd stay all day, all afternoon. Yeah. They accepted Jesus as a prophet and as a healer. But, Daisy... The big difference. The big difference. They did not accept him as the Son of God or that he was risen from the dead or that he was the Savior of the world. We knew that uh, if you don't believe these facts about Jesus, there's no way you could be converted because the Bible said that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Well, if these people would not believe either of these facts, they could not be saved. So we had to do something about it. And that's when, you remember, Daisy, we discovered that it was really the same problem or the same issue that the early church had after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was risen, but the people didn't believe he was risen. Well, we were in the same ambiance among the same kind of people. That was the true issue. And we preached... We studied the language, we entertained visitors, we just spent long hours in religious discourses to no avail. But you know, we could never convince them that Jesus was the Son of God. They were friends, they were lovely people. You remember the group that came one afternoon and we were having such a great visit, and they said, all right, Mr. and Mrs. Osborne, prove to us that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's risen from the dead. I said, well, I can sure do that, and I reached for my Bible, and I started opening the pages and looking uh, to locate the scriptures, and right there, they interrupted me. You remember what they said? Yes. They said, wait, Mr. Osborne, we don't believe in that, and they reached over and they got their black book, and they started to show me what their black book said. Well... We laid them both there on the table. One of them was called the Bible. The other was called their Quran, the word of God that came through the instrumentality of the holy prophet Muhammad, which was God's word. Ours said that Jesus was the Son of God, risen the dead. Theirs denied both. Here we both had black books with gold print on the covers. I'll never forget that shock as long as I live. We couldn't prove which was the Word of God. And that was the crisis. That was it. And we were no good to India in that condition. Right. Because we found out we could not convince the Muslims of what was at the root of our faith. Well, we decided to go home. We uh, felt that it would be better to go back to America, where... uh, People already, at least the most of them, believed the Bible, or at least claimed to believe the Bible, and believed in Jesus. And so we began selling our belongings and trying to put together enough money to reestablish ourselves at home. And we uh, returned home, but in an unbelievable turmoil, because we had seen the masses, we had seen the need, 
we had seen the people who were lost and had no way to come to God and know that they could find Christ and peace and tranquility. And uh, that began our... That really was the beginning of our crisis. You know, we began attending camp meetings and conventions and fellowship meetings because we were searching. Somebody had something to say to us. We didn't know who to go to. We didn't know who to ask. We really didn't know what to ask. But you remember, Daisy, in that process, even as we were coming home, a very wonderful church in the Pacific Northwest, in the state of Oregon, voted us in as their pastor which was a great vote of confidence to us. But we felt terribly discouraged and ashamed to be coming home before our term was you know, ended. That, you know, that's why we were ashamed, because in those days, you didn't go out and preach a few months and come back. People just didn't do that in those days. No. When you went, you went for five years. Some went for seven years. Some even went for ten years. And so we had gone for five years. So to come home ahead of that time, really, you came home in disgrace. And we had calculated that. That we would come home, we'd be disgraced, but we were going to find out what's problem was. always marvel at that epoch of our lives, how merciful God was to us. And those wonderful people in this beautiful church, it was the headquarters church of that four-state district. And they voted us in as Though we were coming home, I remember that very man that preached India into us. I remember he preached at a convention that we attended right after we got home, and he preached about Moses in Egypt, and how that he chose to identify with the people of God rather than to write out the glory and the pomp and the honor of his prestige. And he preached on being big enough to be little and little enough to be big. And here we were, a little enough to be big enough to be used of God. That didn't seem too hard to do at that time. But we were searching, and you remember how many books did we read? We read biographies of men and women that had been used of God. We studied our Bible. We read sermons. We went to hear every evangelist, every preacher, every teacher. We were really searching. We felt that somebody was going to say something that would be our answer. God had given us favor among man. Or at least we were beginning to gain favor among man. But one of those days, when we went to one of those great conventions, mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. that we gained favor mm -hmm. with God. Yeah. And that was what changed our life. I'll never forget that meeting. It seemed like the Lord said to me, If you ever see Jesus, you'll never be the same again. That was a shock to me. I knew he said it. It was real. We went home, we prayed late that night, and then went to bed, and the next morning, at six o'clock sharp, the Lord appeared in that room. I looked on him, just as I'm looking at you right now, Daisy, or as I look on anybody. He was real. He stood there. I lay at his feet as a dead man. I couldn't move a finger or a toe. Water poured out of my eyes, yet I wasn't conscious of weeping. So great was his presence, the human body couldn't stand his presence. I don't know how long it was before I was able to move my toe and move my hand. I don't remember how I got on my face on the floor in that room, and I don't know how many hours I lay there, but 
I know one thing. Jesus became Lord of my life that morning. It was the change of my life. I knew he was alive, and I knew he was Lord. I was changed. I had gotten up early that morning with the babies and I fed remember. them and took care of their baths and all the things that a wife and a mother gets busy with. I was real busy all morning. Then I was feeding the children lunch and getting ready to put them down for their afternoon naps. And about that time, I remember you came out of that room. And when I looked at you, I knew I had a new husband. Something had happened and you were changed. Well, I'll tell you, friends, I had become a denominational man. Before this happened, though I had seen the need of the people, I suppose having failed in India, or at least it seemed to us that we had failed, I suppose that as a husband and as a leader of the home, I was grasping for straws or grasping for anything, and I certainly responded to the denominational attention that was given to me, and I almost became possessed by a drive to go to the top in that field. I wanted the favor of my superiors. My world was my organization. I was active in official functions. I loved it. I had an almost unnatural esteem for our district and national leaders. They were my leaders, my ideals, almost my lords. But when I walked out of that room, I was delivered from that obsession to become something that wasn't what God wanted for me. Jesus had become Lord of my life. I just say it again, Jesus had become Lord of my life. From that morning, nothing else mattered. No other official mattered. I don't mean that I disrespected them. I just mean that Jesus had become my Lord. He was real. He loved me. He come to me. I was important with him. God had a plan for my life. God had created me. I saw myself in a different light. Something had happened. Everything had changed. I had a new perspective. I knew God loved me. He sent Jesus to me. Jesus was real. He was alive. And then the most marvelous and merciful thing happened right after that. A very wonderful, humble man of God came to our area. A man whose ministry was known across the nation. A man who was known for his humility. A man who really represented Jesus in a wonderful way. He came to our city praying for the sick and he had some wonderful gift of healing. And when he prayed for the people and touched them, marvelous things happened. But the thing that impressed us, he came to a great auditorium there in our city in Portland, and uh, we attended. Wasn't that a real proof or a test on your loyalty? Because up until now, your loyalty was so geared toward your denomination that you never would have left the Bible conference we were in the midst of to go to another meeting. Oh, this was a real right. test on whether or not Jesus had truly become Lord of your life. Where were your values? And I'd like to interject here. When you were talking, I thought, I noticed when Jesus became Lord of your life, you didn't lose respect for the others that you had respect for. 
But no. somehow you gained a respect for you, yourself, as an individual, and could even see yourself as something important to God's plan. And I wonder if that isn't a key in Jesus becoming Lord of your life. He lets you actually see you have a sense of value. He needs you. He has a plan for you. You know, Daisy, that has become the crusade of our lives, hasn't it? The passion of our lives to help people to realize that. And even you today, as you're listening to this, if something happens today through us sharing this experience to make you realize Jesus loves you and wants to come to you just like he came to us because you have value. He has a plan for you. You're going someplace. He designed you for a purpose. If you can catch that spark, It'll change your life like it did ours. I remember I forgot to mention, and you just interjected, we were host of this conference. And uh, being the pastors of the headquarters church, we were responsible to host the people. And that's when this man of God came. Exactly. Well, I had seen the Lord. Jesus had become my Lord. We had to go. Here was a chance. Of course, you went first and came back and gave me the report. With my dear friend that was almost 90 years old, she and I went. Isn't that remarkable? An old, old woman. The spirit of a young woman. You know, she was as young as a child in her heart. She inspired your book, you remember, that you wrote about being young in faith. That that very woman. And ever since I've known that woman, I have prayed that as long as I live, I'll be young in my faith and young in my spirit, young enough to believe, young enough to reach out, young enough to start again, young enough to know that it can be done, anything can be done if it's for God's glory and the good of people. That's what drew us out, really. That old woman went with you, and you went and saw this man of God, and you saw miracles, and you came back and told me about it. First time in my life I'd ever seen miracles, even though I accepted Jesus at the age of 12 years old. Here I was, a grown woman, a wife, a mother. I had never seen a miracle. And yet, Daisy, we had prayed faithfully for the sick. It was almost a ritual for us. Every Friday ritual. night in That's our meetings, right. we prayed That's for the right. sick. We didn't see much happen. No. <laughs> I mean, prayed. I had never seen deaf ears come open or blind receive their sight or cripples get up and walk. I never had seen it. Well, we saw it when we went to that she meeting. Did. And that was part of our answer. I had seen the Lord. I knew he was alive. I knew he was real. I knew the Bible was real. I knew that Jesus was now Lord of my life, and therefore I had purpose. I knew we had some place to go. We had destiny. We had a goal. But it didn't all come together yet until we saw this man. And I remember what touched me. Everybody else was talking about his gift of healing. Well, that was wonderful. But the thing that attracted us, Daisy, was that he preached about Jesus. Exactly. He really preached about Jesus and lifted up Jesus. See, God had said to you, if you ever see Jesus, you'll never be the same again. Well, you saw him in that vision. Jesus was so merciful, he actually stood before you as a man would stand before you. Then we were getting a second chance together to see Jesus because we were seeing him demonstrate himself. We were seeing his power. So we were actually seeing Jesus again. You know, really, that's what Christianity is. It's Jesus working Mm -hmm. through us. He uses our hands, our lips, our ears, our eyes, our tongues. He speaks through us and loves through us. The people in Bible days saw God through Jesus, and today people see Jesus through us. That's really true. I think that's the greatest 
revelation of true Christianity. And that's what we saw in this man. It wasn't a gift. There was a wonderful gift at work in him. I, God has given those gifts, has established those gifts in his church. But that wasn't what attracted me. It was that he talked about Jesus and demonstrated Jesus. I remember hundreds of people came forward and accepted Christ, and that's what we had wanted so much in India. We loved those people, but we couldn't convince them of Jesus. We knew he was real ourselves, but we had to get up and come home where everybody, at least we thought most everybody already believed in him. But oh, that yearning. I'll never forget. It was an agony in me. But what happened to you up there in that balcony as you were seeing this? Oh, when I saw that man, a line of people came across in front of him. One by one, remarkable things mm. took place. People with curvatures of the spine went straight. People with braces on their legs took them off and walked away. But I don't know why this affected me so much when he stopped a little girl who was deaf and dumb from birth. And he said very kindly to all of us, he said, will everyone bow your head and close your eyes? This little girl is possessed of a deaf and dumb spirit. Be very reverent because we don't want this spirit that will come out of her to enter into someone else who's irreverent. Well, I'd never heard anyone talk like that in my life. Jesus talked like that. Sure. But, wow, this was for real. He prayed a simple prayer. He put his fingers in her ears. He said, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I adjure thee by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you come out of the child and enter her no more. And then he was quiet. That's all he said. Mm -hmm. Well, I was in shock. And wonderful I'm shock. Wonderful <laughs> shock. And then you could have heard a pin drop. And then you remember, he heaved a sigh of relief. He said, the evil spirit's gone from the girl. You can lift your heads and look now. The spirit's gone out of her. She's well. He hadn't checked her. He hadn't proved her. He hadn't done anything. Oh, I thought again, wow. And I looked at you about that time, and you, your eyes were a fountain of tears. Oh. You were just weeping and weeping and weeping. I'll never forget it. We've seen it hundreds of times since then. But over my head, a thousand voices whirled and said, You can do that. You can do that. You don't have that gift, but you can do that. You have the Word of God. That's what Jesus did. That's the way he did it. That's what Peter did. That's what Paul did. That proves the Bible's good today. You can do that. Oh, I knew Jesus was alive. I knew I didn't have that gift, but I knew that man had spoken in the name of Jesus, and that was part of the Word, right. his gift pointed me to the Word of God. His gift made the Word come alive. You know, a gift is a sign. A sign has to point to something. It doesn't point to itself. It points to the Word. It points to Jesus. It points to Him who is the living Word. I knew I could do that because I had His Word. You remember what we did? We went home. What a change. Oh, what a change. Well, we sat down and talked most of that night. <laughs> That's when we decided to start all over. And I said, honey, let's just read the New Testament 
as though we had never read it in our lives. A brand new book. You remember that? That was it. Mm -hmm. I went down to the basement. You had the children, of course. You had to take care of them. It's more difficult for a woman, often, than for a man. But I shut myself in the basement, and I began to read that. And you did, between taking care of the babies and answering the phone, you were very sweet to me Nap in those times days. really help. <laughs> uh, yeah. I guess that's what you call real teammates. That's right. In God's that's Word. Right I said, Lord, you remember we made this commitment. Mm -hmm. We're going to read it as though we've never read it before. New book. We had seen Christ. I had seen him. We had both seen him in demonstration. Mm -hmm. Now we had a new book, yeah. the New Testament of Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. our Lord. And as we read it, I'll tell you, I'll never forget the shock as I ran across scripture after scripture after scripture where Jesus had clearly given us authority over demons, over diseases, to speak in his name, just exactly like that man had done in that public meeting. I remember these things grew on us as we talked about them and shared notes and remarks with each other. And I finally went upstairs and shut myself in our small bedroom. And for some days I was there without food and without water. That frightened me to death nearly because you said, honey, take the church, pastor, don't look for me. I don't know how long I'm going to be in here. I'm not coming out until I have heard some more from Jesus just petrified me because I had never had the full responsibility of the church and all of its programs before. Uh, it was a great day. Something had to happen. I had to know. And you know, when I went in that room and dropped on my knees and opened my Bible, in that instant, God spoke to me, but I didn't know. I didn't know. I stayed in there. I forget the number of days, but do you know? He never said any more. And every time I asked him to speak, that same thing would come back to me again and again and again. And I finally accepted it and came out. And this is what it was. The Lord said, as I have been with others, so will I be with you. Wherever you go, I'll give you the land for your possession. And no demon, no disease, or no power can stand before you all the days of your life if you can get the people to believe my word. You see, that was the revelation that I'd had in that meeting when that man of God spoke and even demonstrated this wonderful gift of healing. But the gift was a sign of the Spirit that pointed out to the word. It was the word that we had. And that was when we discovered what the Holy Ghost is all about. Yes, and that really, in essence, is what caused us to write the book later, mm -hmm. The Purpose mm -hmm. of Pentecost. Our only Preachers have told me around the world that that's one of the greatest books we've ever written, and it has been a great blessing. But that's what it was based on. We saw what the Holy Ghost is for. What a shame. When I came out of that room, I knew we had to do something about it. God was with us. He would back up our word. He would be with us. We had to do something. And, and it was then that we began to make announcements on the radio, and we ran some ads in the paper, and we became bold enough to invite the people to come to the church where we were pastoring and to bring the sick. Why, before then, that would have frightened me half to death. But I knew 
Jesus was with us and he would do for us what he had done for other people. And they came. And that old tabernacle was full to the door. The crowd packed in there and I preached to them and then lined the people up and one after another after another was just miraculously healed. You remember the first person you prayed for was a woman who had walked on crutches for 14 years. Oh, yes, I remember. Surgically and medically, she would be considered an impossible case. Right. Because her hip socket had been removed and she was her hip was stiff. You she remember she had been in an accident yeah. and it crushed her hip mm-hmm. and then it grew back right. solid and they had to remove it. Yes, and they operated and she would never be able to walk again. So she got by on these crutches and while you were ministering to her, she took her crutches and started to hand them to you. And I remember I took the crutches and you commanded her in the name of Jesus to walk. And she had her hands uplifted and her eyes closed. Her face was shining and she took off walking and she kept walking and she kept listening and she kept listening all the time that you were ministering to everybody else. She still had her hands up walking everywhere. Come to find out she was hearing angels singing. All that time, she says, I've been listening to the heavenly host singing praises to our Lord. Well, that was the beginning of a change for our city and for our lives. Well, I'll tell you, for us, the search had ended. That was our Easter of resurrection. That was our Easter of resurrection. Our search had ended. Our crisis was over. We had the answer. But then, what were we going to do about it? And you remember... Well, I know what I thought. All I could see was those masters in India again. Those Muslims. Those Hindus. Those wonderful people. Wonderful people. It was for them we started our search, really. That's right. Because we loved them. And we knew they needed Christ. But we couldn't prove to them that he was the Christ. Now, we could prove it. As Jesus said, the proof is in the miracle. You know, we say that every problem contains the seed of its own solution. And you can reverse that and say, every solution brings with it the seed of a bigger problem. How true. So our search for that had ended, but my problem had just started. I remember that. here I was in the security of a home which every woman wants very happily married with lovely children, everything a woman could want. And now it risks being uprooted because my man had seen Jesus, our lives had been changed, and he had been called to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That was my problem. You know, the thing that impressed me about you at that time, you were in shock because the Lord hadn't appeared to you. Not yet. And, you know, most women, they just say, well, whatever my husband does, I'll do it with him, and to a certain extent, we understand that. But what I liked about you, of course, I do love you. (laughs) You've been a wonderful teammate all of these years. But what I liked about you, and I remember as a young husband, I liked it. You were determined God was going to speak to you, too. I really felt that Jesus was obligated to say something to me because... I was, it's true, I was part of you, but I was an individual. But say, we better not get on that. That's a whole story, a powerful story, David, that you've got to tell. Yes, I'd be, I'll tell it. But Jesus did speak to me. That's I did true, have my Lord. spiritual experience. So I have been able to be a go-along, not a tag-along. That's right, that's right. <laughs> well, we set out. We couldn't get to India. 
but we knew about the country of Jamaica that was pretty close We to left it. that house full of furniture, and all we had was a car, kids, and cases with a destination unknown, but we were on our way. And we went to the island nation of Jamaica, and there for 13 weeks, we preached and ministered every night, night after night after night, praying for the people individually. And you know, Daisy, though we can't get into your story, uh, that's got to wait for another recording. We've got to be careful here. But you remember, night after night, hundreds of people would line up, plumb out on the street for us to pray for one by one. That's the only, the, the only way we knew to do it. And you remember, I couldn't do it alone. And we would set the little kitties in a chair beside uh, what, maybe one of the pastor's wives. And you would take one line on one side of the platform. I'd take a line on the other side. People with cross eyes, blind eyes, deaf ears, cripples, they were healed just the same in your line as in mine. Didn't matter. The people didn't care which line they got into. One can chase a thousand, two can chase ten thousand. Wasn't it wonderful? For 13 weeks like that, every night, during that time, over 9,000 people came forward, knelt down, prayed the sinner's prayer, and accepted Jesus. Over 90 totally blind people received their sight instantly, hundreds of others gradually. Over 125 deaf-mutes instantly talked and received their hearing. Scores, probably hundreds of others, were gradually healed. And the Lord only knows how many thousands of other people were healed as we prayed for them. More fruit right there from our labors than in the seven years of ministry before that and miracles made the difference. Daisy, more fruit on one night That's right. than in seven That's years right. before that we preached. Mm -hmm. And people thought we were successful. You know, many times one night would be three or four hundred people would accept. So I right? guess that answers our question that we asked at the beginning of this recording. Are miracles really important today? Oh, they are Do we important. really need them? They are important as long as there are people out there that are being born. The people that are being born today need to see Jesus the same as the people that were being born in Bible days. It's no different. The church was established for the people then, but God reestablishes himself for every new generation. Jesus real today. That's why I think we've made the theme of our crusade around the world. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the same today. You know, we started out. We went to Jamaica and Puerto Rico and Cuba, then to Central and South America. And you remember when we went to Japan and they said, oh, it'll be different here. The people here are Shinto. It was the same, wasn't it? Same everywhere. Same. Buddhist, Shinto. You remember in that first crusade in Japan, over 44 Deaf mutes were That's here right. in Japan, and the Japanese were as excited and as emotional as anyone in the Western Maybe hemisphere. even more so. We I found them so. very emotional. Next, very it was.